say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and so glad you could join me. My guest today is Paul Andrew Hutton, professor of history at the University of New Mexico, documentary writer, and award-winning Western author. He's here to talk about his best-selling book, The Apache Wars, The Hunt for Geronimo, The Apache Kid, and The Captive Boy, who started the longest war in American history. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure, Eric. Thanks for having me. Sure, of course. So so when did you first discover your love of Western American history? Oh, my goodness. You know, um, like a lot of people of uh, my baby boomer uh, generation, I got hooked on it through all the Western television shows that were on in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, at one time, in, in, uh, there were like 30 primetime TV shows uh, that were Westerns back in the day when there were only three networks. Um, and it was in particular, it was that Walt Disney, uh, Davy Crockett uh, series, a uh, little three-part show and a movie that came out uh, as well that hooked me on history. I'm a Gen X guy myself, but I, I remember the reruns as a kid. And especially the theme music. That was Fess Parker, right? That was Fess Parker, yeah. And years late, later, I had a. Uh, I do museum exhibits as well sometimes. I did a big exhibit over in Texas at the Texas State History Museum on Davy Crockett. And uh, Parker came as our special guest to the uh, opening of uh, the exhibit, which was a huge exhibit. And uh, so I got to give him a private tour, which was. Uh, a huge thrill. And I, of course, pretended to be, you know, a serious academic, but I was just turning inside. Here's my boyhood hero who had inspired my whole calling in life. And, uh, and you know, he, he turned out to be, he was about, he's about 6'6". Six, six. He's, he's passed away a few years ago, but he was 6'6", six, six, uh, about 80 years old, but tall and, and uh, perfect and uh, to be around just a great gentleman so it was a real real kick what was your your first book in this genre what what got you interested in writing in it well i always wanted to be a writer um but i figured you know that um the writing business uh being what it was even back in the 1970s that i better have a day job and so i wisely decided to become a college professor and I just always loved history anyway, and so uh, got my Ph.D. at the University of New Mexico. And my dissertation there was on uh, uh, Philip Sheridan, General Sheridan, who not only is a famous Civil War hero, but also commanded the Army in the West. And so my 
dissertation became my first book called Phil Sheridan and His Army, which did very well in the academic world, won a bunch of prizes and kind of, uh, you know, cemented me career-wise as an academic Western historian. Um, but I always um, tried to write for a popular audience as well as trying to please my academic colleagues, which is uh, kind of a interesting tap dance to do. Um, and in fact, my very first two publications were couldn't have been more different, uh, although they were both on General Custer, who was Sheridan's protege. One was in the Western Historical Quarterly, which was the leading scholarly journal in my field, Western history. And I was, in fact, the first graduate student who ever published in that journal. Uh, but then my other one was in TV Guide, which at that time was the largest selling magazine in the world. <laughs> so, uh, couldn't have been, couldn't have been more different. And that kind of started me on my, uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde career where I've sort of bounced back and forth between the academy and, and popular history, although I've gone over pretty completely now to popular history. So what was it about the Apache people, the culture, the history? What was it that inspired you to write a book about them? Well, um, it's interesting because I had written uh, quite a bit on the military frontier and the Indian Wars, but I had never really worked on the Apaches, uh, spending uh, concentrating mostly on the Great Plains, um, the Sioux Wars, the Cheyennes, and the Arapahoes. And so the Apaches were um, sort of a new undertaking for me. There's a there had been a broad literature on the Apaches published over the years. Some really great historians had uh, worked uh, on the Apaches, Dan Trapp, Ed Sweeney. And so there was uh, quite a bit of secondary material uh, to draw on, but I, I did three years of research before I completed uh, the book, so it was quite quite a chore. Uh, I came to the topic, though, um, for commercial reasons. My uh, agent uh, after, had called me after the success of Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn, which was kind of a surprise bestseller. And suddenly the folks back in New York all got interested in books on Indians. And so he called and, and um, suggested, actually, the Apache Wars as a topic, and off we went. Interesting. So again, your book is really epic in scope. It covers a large cast of characters. It spans decades and decades. But I'd like to first ask you about the Apache people. How did they differ from other Native American tribes in the Southwest? Well, interestingly, they had come late to the Southwest. Uh, and ironically, in Arizona in particular, not in New Mexico, but in Arizona, the Western Apaches may have arrived at about the same time or a little after Coronado was making his uh, Spanish explorations through the area. So, so um, there's, there is a certain irony in the fact that uh, white explorers may have gotten here before the, uh, before the Apaches did. But they had come down the front range, migrated south, uh, they're Athabascan speakers. Uh, they may have come south with the Navajo, and uh, they were forced west by the Comanches out on the plains and split. Some of them migrated down um, the Rio Grande, and uh, that became the Mescaleros in southeastern New Mexico and uh, the Chiricahuas, uh, members people in southwestern New Mexico. And then others pushed further westward, came down through Arizona, and those became the western Apaches that live in the mountains still of uh, central Arizona. And they um, became uh, the enemies of the folks who already were here in Arizona, the Pimas, the Papagos, uh, the Tohono O'odham people, and uh, in New Mexico, the Pueblos, and uh, also the Hopis and uh, the Zunis, and um, eventually they became enemies of their cousins, the Navajos. And so intertribal warfare was just a constant during all this period. And the Apaches themselves were raiding people. They're kind of the Vikings of America, and they lived by raiding. That's how they, that's how they made their living. They live in a very inhospitable land. Um, and um, 
so they preyed upon their neighbors, and actually when the Spanish arrived in numbers, uh, that was like a huge boon to the economy because it gave them new targets. Are they a desert people? Well, they're desert mountain people, and and uh, in fact, it's interesting, they never became horseback Indians. They used horses, although they were just as likely to eat a horse as ride it. And horses were just not suited to the mountains in which the Apaches lived, both in uh, New Mexico and in uh, what's going to become Arizona. Some bands, like the Jicarillas in northern New Mexico, the Mescaleros down in southeastern New Mexico, did use horses more. And they, were, of course, were closer to the Plains tribes. But uh, the Chiricahuas and uh, the western Apaches um, were not particularly uh, horse Indians. They're tribal societies and very close-knit uh, tribal societies. The family unit is the most important. And... Because of this, because of this, and because of the isolation that they lived in, um, they never were able to unite. And it was very rare that uh, a leader could bring the diverse Apache bands together. Mangus Colorados was such a leader. Cochise um, also. But Geronimo, who's the most famous of the Apaches, um, did lead people from different bands, uh, but mostly Chiricahuas. And um, he did not lead, you know, any kind of great coalition like Mangus Colorado's put together. So in the title of your book, you claim the Apache Wars was the longest war in American history. How do you define the longest war? You know, and uh, people, of course, have... uh, have called me on that and said, now, really, uh, the Seminole War down in Florida went on for a very long time as well. Um, but the Apache War was, Apache Wars were almost continuous from 1861 on until 1886. And there had been some fighting in the 1850s. But it there was a real connection between the beginning and the ending of those wars that we don't see in the other uh, Indian wars that uh, occurred in the United States. Although if we keep uh, fooling around in Afghanistan, that's going to be the longest war in American history pretty quickly. Um, but I chose to define it as uh, as the longest war because it really did retard settlement, white settlement in Arizona and New Mexico, especially Arizona. And until uh, Geronimo surrenders in 1886, and that's really the end of American Indian warfare and the sort of 300-year conflict between the European invader and the native people, uh, until he surrenders, uh, there's going to be no progress on the frontier. So again, because your, your title is so compelling, I want to go back to that. It says, The Captive Boy that started the longest war in American history. Could you tell that story? Who was the captive boy and what role did he play in launching the Apache Wars? Well, this character was really the one that drew me to the story and I thought I could use him uh, because of his involvement in the Apache War from the beginning to the end as a true character. Um, Unfortunately, there wasn't as much you know, paper on him. He was illiterate, so he never wrote any letters. And so it uh, it was kind of a tough research job to manage to pull out all of the threads of his involvement. But his name was Mickey Free, which is just a great name. Um, And uh, it comes from, in fact, uh, uh, a character in a British novel, a British military novel. And I'll I'll relate that story in a second. But he um, he was uh, a young, half Hispanic, half Irish boy named Felix Telez. His mother had married a um, pioneer down in so- southeastern Arizona named Johnny Ward in the 1850s. And young Mickey was about 12 years old when Cayotero Apaches, uh, one of the bands of the Western Apaches, kidnapped him from his uh, home in the Sonoida Valley and carried him away. And Johnny Ward went to nearby Fort Buchanan uh, and reported the kidnapping and demanded that troops, of course, retrieve his boy and his cattle that had also been taken. 
And um, Mickey was a little old. He was 12 at the time, but he was small for his age, scrawny. Uh, but he was a little old to be taken captive. Um, the Apaches took a lot of captives, and there was a very active slave trade going on throughout the entire Southwest. And captives were valuable, uh, but usually a 12-year-old boy was a little old to keep uh, and would have normally been killed. But there was something about him um, that attracted his kidnapper. It may have been the fact that he had lost an eye at an early age, and um, the man who led the raiding party, a warrior named Beto, also had one eye, and he carried the boy off, and the, he soon traded him away to the Western Apaches who adopted him, treated him first as a slave, but then he quickly became a family member and became you know, um, part of um, the Western Apache world. And so he grew up as this red-headed, he had red hair and freckles, uh, red-headed Apache, but while, while all that was happening, uh, this uh, young lieutenant, uh, George Bascom from Fort Buchanan, went with uh, a detachment of troopers and Johnny Ward to the village of Cochise to demand uh, that Cochise give up the kidnapped boy. Well, Cochise had nothing to do with the kidnapping. He said that, but, in, but Bascom took several of uh, Cochise's relatives as prisoner and held them as hostage. And this incident, uh, the Bascom Affairs, it came to be known, started the Apache War. And um, from that point on until 1886, conflict uh, rages all because of the kidnapping of this uh, this young boy later when more troops come out and they begin to enlist Apache scouts uh, the boy enlists in the army and because of his red hair uh, and his freckles um, they were he reminds the soldiers of this character from uh, this old uh, British novel that all of them had read as kids and so they named him Mickey Free, and they gave all the Apache scouts uh, various names because they couldn't pronounce their real names. And he became one of the most valuable and important of the scouts, and he became a translator uh, for the Army and for the government in dealings with the Apaches. So he became a pivotal figure, and it's interesting that he, uh, the Apaches, especially the Chiricahuas, blamed him for starting the war because his kidnapping, you know, blaming the victim for what had happened, his kidnapping set the war in motion. Uh, and then the military never really trusted him either because he was so Apache. And so he's the perfect man in the middle who um, doesn't quite know who he is and, and searches for identity all through his life. But because he's so valuable, he's at almost every important event that transpires until the end because Geronimo feared him. Um, he wasn't in at the end when they finally uh, captured Geronimo. So where did his allegiances ultimately lie? With the United States government? He, he retained his allegiance to the government and to the, uh, to the army. And uh, he was well paid, you know, for those days as a first sergeant of scouts and also as a translator. In fact, he took an Apache delegation back and met President Grover Cleveland and translated in the White House. Um, but at the very end, he went back. Uh, he left the military and he went back and um, to to the Apache people. And he dies on the White Mountain Reservation um, just before the First World War. And so ultimately, he lived as an Apache. What about Cochise? Would you mind talking about him and explaining the role he played at the beginning of the war? Certainly, and he's just one of the great characters in in American Western history. And of course, I had fallen in love with that story as a kid. I saw the the movie Broken Arrow with Jeff Chandler as Cochise and Jimmy Stewart as Tom Jeffords, and then read the novel Blood Brother by Elliot Arnold that it's based on. And, and I think it may have been um, the first kind of adult novel I ever read, you know. Uh, not that it's adult in that sense, it's just for grown-ups. Um, and a great novel, just a fabulous, it was a bestseller, and it was made in this great movie. And the story was about the friendship between this white army scout, Tom Jeffords, 
and um, Cochise, the great chief of the Chiricahua Apache. And Cochise was the son-in-law of Mangus Colorados, and they had united after um, this Bascom affair. Uh, they had united in warring against uh, the whites, and at the same time, the Civil War broke out, and so most of the troops in Arizona and New Mexico uh, were withdrawn. And, um, in fact, settlers were thrown out of uh, southeastern Arizona and had to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, southwestern Arizona and had to retreat um, back to New Mexico. Um, and so he waged a 10-year war, and then his friendship with Jeffords led to General Oliver O. Howard being able to give the Cherokees a reservation in their homeland and in the, the conflict. Cochise then would die five years later. Um, and once he died, the government, of course, uh, promptly broke the treaty and uh, removed the Cherokees to San Carlos. And uh, Cochise's son then joined with Geronimo and began the series of breakouts that uh, became the Geronimo Wars. It must have been such an interesting time in that area of the world during the 1860s, 70s, 80s. You have so many different cultures meshing together, Americans, Mexicans, the Apaches, other indigenous tribes. It must have been quite the clash of cultures. Well, it really was. And uh, part of the story of the Apache Wars is also the wars down in Mexico. And one of the greatest of the Apache leaders, Victoria, was killed uh, down in Mexico. But to the Apaches, northern Mexico and Sonora and Chihuahua were all part of you know, what we could call Apacheria. And um, so the boundary line that's created by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and then later the Gadsden Purchase, well, that divides their territory. And then, of course, the United States government would divide it even further with these, you know, lines on paper and divide uh, New Mexico territory into the territories of New Mexico and Arizona. And each of these had conflicting government jurisdictions. And so, obviously, it was difficult for the Apaches to, you know, negotiate with anyone. And then also, of course, um, they came to understand that the border provided them some sanctuary, uh, although the United States and Mexico finally reached agreements whereby U.S. troops pursued the Apaches deep into Mexico. Uh, and that was finally their, their undoing with, uh, with the final Geronimo campaign. But it was very, very complicated. And then, of course, uh, down in Arizona, the Tohono uh, Odom people, Pimas, Papagos, uh, were also uh, being attacked by the Apaches, and so they would join with the whites against the Apaches. Uh, Pueblos provided scouts against the Apaches. But finally at the end, because the Apaches were so divided themselves, it, were, it, it was Apache scouts who tracked down Geronimo and brought an end to the Apache Wars. It's such a complicated history in a way. You handle it really well in your book. They're called the Apache Wars, but there are multiple conflicts one after another, right? All with their own plots and their own characters and their own motivations. It is. Uh, the kind of two through characters I found that I could use were Mickey Free and Geronimo, both of whom were at the beginning, you know, all the way through uh, to the end. But it it is a complex story, and um, I'd like to think I made it pretty clear. Uh, some uh, folks have uh, gotten a lot of nice commentary on the books, and some folks have, have written me and said, wow, it would have been nice if you perhaps had done a timeline as an appendix or certainly a cast of characters as an appendix. I think that would have been a good idea just because there are so many uh, characters involved in the story. I think sometimes, especially, you know, uh, white America thinks that Native peoples um, – uh, you know, shared a common culture and shared a common identity, and that just wasn't the case. Uh, even here amongst the Apache people, we find them so deeply divided. This shouldn't surprise us, considering that the Americans themselves had just engaged in a great civil war in which they killed 600,000 of each other. So Americans were divided as well. 
and the Apaches uh, were the same way. It was very difficult to unite any uh, of the you know tribal groups together in all of in any part of American history. That's why uh, remarkable Indian leaders like uh, Pontiac, Tecumseh, Sitting Bull, Mangus, Colorado's Cochise. Uh, get our attention because they were able to do something that not very many leaders could do. So yeah, this is a remarkable cast of characters. If you don't mind um, commenting on a few of them. Sure. Okay. I'd like to start with Mengus Coronatus. Who was he and what role did he play in the wars? Well, he's a great... uh... Chiricahua leader, and he is, um, he lives at the headwaters of the Gila River, kind of where Silver City, New Mexico is now, down in um, southwestern uh, New Mexico, in the mountains, beautiful area, just a gorgeous area. Uh, and that also is where Geronimo was from. And Mangus had, had three beautiful daughters, and in very much in European style, he married them off cleverly to important other Apache leaders, and this was one of the ways he was able to build this coalition and become such a leader. And the Mexicans had been hiring uh, scalp hunters and providing bounties for Apache scalps, and this was really uh, sort of organized terror. I mean, these bands of scalp hunters led by uh, people like like uh, James Kirker uh, numbered in the hundreds, and they would go out into Apache country and you know murder Apaches and take the scalps back. And um, this so enraged Mangus that he put together a great coalition of all the tribes, and they made life miserable for uh, the folks in Sonora and Chihuahua. And in fact, they almost depopulated the country. Um, they could have if they wanted to, but what, you know you don't want to destroy the people that are providing you with a living because. Um, they needed to raid down there to get cattle and sheep and and the goods that they sold, including humans, uh, that they sold to make a living, as Cochise once put it. He, uh, in his negotiations with General Howard, he said, I, I can't uh, negotiate till my, my men come back and they're down in Mexico making a living. So, uh, raiding. But Mangus, uh, one of Mangus's daughters married Cochise, and so they were very close. And uh, Mangus fought the Americans, um, but then attempted to make peace, and that was his uh, that was his undoing. He was betrayed by American officers um, and murdered uh, after he had been captured. This really enraged Cochise and um, contributed to the ferocity of uh, the attacks that the Apaches launched against the Americans. They closed the Butterfield stage line. They depopulated uh, south uh, eastern Arizona and uh, kind of besieged Tucson. It was really uh, really something. One of the few times in American history where the American frontier is thrown back. Uh, but then California troops come in and uh, sort of reinforce uh, folks. They're on their way, of course, to fight the Confederates because the Americans are divided as well. Young Baskin, who started the whole thing, is killed, in fact, at the Battle of Valverde, fighting Confederate invaders in New Mexico. So it's uh, it's just a real violent time and a very uh, complicated time. And uh, Mangus is one of uh, the most prominent of the early casualties of the conflict. His name, Red Sleeves, uh, it was said, came from... Um, uh, the long white shirt he wore, and as he waded into the Mexicans that he slaughtered, uh, it was turned red, and that's how he got his name. Wow. So you said that the Apache's way of life depended on raiding other tribes. Do you think this benefited them in their fight against the government, or do you think this isolated them against the tribes they had already decimated in the area. Right. Well, um, certainly they didn't have uh, many friends, and in fact their name means uh, enemy in Zuni. That's how they got their name, Apache. Um, they had alienated uh, many of the native peoples in the area, and of course uh, they had they had 
through this 200 years of conflict, you know, it had led led to many blood scores with uh, with Mexico. The Americans don't get out here un, until the uh, 1850s, and then in very small numbers. New Mexico is fairly uh, well settled, but only along the Rio Grande corridor for the most part, and um, maybe 40,000 people in New Mexico at the end of uh, the Mexican War, uh, maybe 500 people in what is now Arizona. So there's not a large population. And so for the longest time, the Americans and the Apaches got along because there wasn't, uh, wasn't much conflict. And um, by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, we were supposed to stop Apache raids into Mexico, but there was a lot of winking and nodding that went on with that. And, of course, uh, the Apaches would raid into Mexico that sell their goods up in Mesilla and uh, other New Mexico towns. And that's how, they made their, that's how they made their living. If you're essentially making your living as a pirate, uh, you got to have someone who's going to buy the stuff from you. And when they raided in the United States, of course, they just went down to uh, into Mexico, into Sonora, and sold the goods down there. So... Uh, everyone was kind of complicit in this uh, business that was this business that was going on, um, but they were just uh, incredible fighters. Um, General Crook, who fought them, uh, called them the tigers of the human species. They knew the land. They knew the land uh, intimately. It was their ally in their conflict. They were superb, All, although they were poorly armed. They managed, of course, to uh, fight off the uh, you know Americans for 25 years, which is pretty remarkable. How did they use the land to their advantage in fighting their enemies? Well, of course, they're mountain people. They know where every waterhole is, and waterhole water is life out here in the West. And uh, they knew where the where the water was. Um, they also knew uh, the native vegetation so well. They knew how to use that uh, to their advantage. They, of course, uh, had no permanent villages. They're, they're uh, nomadic in the sense that they moved with the seasons and they moved around um, as uh, particular natural plants would ripen and, and they would harvest them. Um, they did some rudimentary agriculture, you know, some corn, that sort of thing, but not much. But so they really knew the land, and they knew all of the land, all the way from, you know, northern Arizona all the way down into central Mexico, and they knew all the hiding places. And um, if you visit the country that they roamed through, it's just astonishing that they were ever caught. And that's why the Apache scouts themselves were so valuable because they also knew where the water holes were, and so. They knew there were only so many places where you could camp, um, and uh, they knew there were only so many kind of favored places to set up villages, uh, and that's how, of course, eventually the Apaches were conquered. But it was a very, very difficult and, and prolonged war. And they, and, and they were masters at guerrilla warfare, uh, even though it didn't have a name at that time. And um, they didn't take scalps. They also didn't rape. They're a very puritanical people, uh, and so all those old movies are wrong. You know, the no fate worse, you know, fate worse than death was facing any white woman taken by the Apaches, and they never took scalps because they have a, a real fear of the dead and of touching the dead, and so they didn't, you know, they didn't take body parts. But they were masters at torture, and oh. Uh, to be taken by the Apaches uh, was uh, really a grim fate indeed. And they really struck terror into the hearts of their enemies because of you know what they did to uh, male prisoners that they took and tortured to death. I have to ask you, how did they torture their enemies? What unique techniques did they use? Oh, my goodness. They um, would tie people up, uh, you know, we're, uh, tie people up to um, sort of the small trees we have out here um, so that their head was just above a small fire that they would build and they would cook their brains. They would um, lay people out 
and um, put uh, sweet substances on them, pry their mouths open so that insects would uh, crawl inside and devour them. They would bury people up to their necks in ant, in you know, fire ant holes. And they would use uh, various, you know, cactus to uh, torture uh, torture folks as well. Uh, it was pretty grim stuff, pretty grim stuff. But, you know, uh, it was a grim, grim world then. And um, I'm often charmed by, um, you know, the Europeans came, you know, to the New World in the 1500s in great numbers and you know they called the Indian savages and of course it's the same time you know the Inquisition is going on and in England if you're a traitor you're disemboweled and cut into four pieces I mean so um, uh, folks had different sensibilities to say the least on both sides but nevertheless uh, you know if you're if you're a trooper in the US cavalry and you see one of your buddies uh you know uh laid out like this it made a deep impression on you so um folks were that old uh movie cliche about saving the last bullet for yourself uh, that was really true they folks really did <laughs> Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show, The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Your book is so expansive, and we obviously can't cover everything everything yes of course <laughs> but i'd love it if you could maybe pick out a battle that that you found especially interesting maybe one that turned the tide for a particular side well one of the great battles it was a very early one and it was one of the few times uh where the apaches um because there are so few Apaches, I mean, there are only 8,000 Apaches during this, this whole period, so it's not a large population, and they're divided, of course, so, you know, this isn't uh, two, three, four hundred, you know, warriors being thrown at, at army detachments or at forts. Um, 
like you see in the movies, but there was the Battle at Apache Pass, which occurred when California troops uh, under General James Carlton were coming um, east to fight the rebels who had invaded New Mexico. Well, first they had to get past the Apaches, and the the rebels had actually uh, pushed into Arizona and occupied Tucson, and so the Apaches were fighting both the rebels and the Yankees at the same time, and there's even uh, a crazy episode in which pioneers from Arizona are retreating to the east, and uh, the U.S. Army has abandoned them, and uh, rebel troops ride to the rescue and save them when their wagon train is attacked by the Apaches. You just can't make this stuff up. Um, but the Battle of Apache Pass occurred as U.S. troops were moving through Apache Pass, and that's um, just to the uh, east of Tucson. It's actually right off I-10. You can you can see it as you drive by, although I dare say most folks don't notice it. Um, and it was an important way station because of the springs that were there, and it. Um, that had been where the Bascom affair had taken place and where Cochise's uh, relatives had been hanged. And so uh, troops were moving through there, and they were, they were ambushed by Cochise in Mangus, Colorados, and uh, pinned down, and it was a very, very close affair. But in one of the few occasions in all of Indian warfare where artillery was important, the Californians had artillery with them, and they used that to dislodge the Apaches. And in that fight, uh, at the very end of that fight, a small band of couriers were uh, being pursued by a band of Apaches. And uh, one of the horses went down, and this courier decided to sell his life as uh, dearly as he could and uh, took aim at the uh, leading Apache coming right at him and shot him off out of his uh, off his horse. Well, that, that turned out to be Mangus Colorados, who was gravely wounded and almost died. They took him down to Mexico and at gunpoint forced a doctor to operate on him and save him. Uh, and that's what kind of led Mangus to decide to sue for peace um, after that episode. So uh, that single shot at the Battle of Apache Pass really kind of turned the tide um, against the Apaches and led to Mangus Colorados trying to make peace with the Americans, but of course didn't work because they killed him. That was in what year? That is um, in 1862. Okay, so that happened pretty early on in the Apache Wars. Very early on, yeah. And uh, Mangus attempts to make peace. Uh, General Carlton essentially uh, orders him killed, and he's murdered after he, when he comes in to negotiate. Um and then uh, that ends any chance of peace. And then Cochise is on the warpath for uh, 10 more years. How does Cochise meet his end? Cochise uh, dies. They think it may have been stomach cancer. Uh, hard to say. Uh, but he um, essentially dies of old age. We don't know when he was born, but he was certainly in his 70s. And so was Mangus Colorados when he died. That was an important death for the Apache people because uh, as long as he lived, the peace had held. Uh, but once he died, the government moved quickly to dispossess the Apaches and move them out of uh, their, uh, their country down in southeastern Arizona and put them on the San Carlos Reservation. And that was a, a forced march, right? Yeah, they were essentially surrounded by troops, and they had uh, no hope to uh, to make any kind of uh, you know settlement. And this is what led to Geronimo breaking out, and it led Naiche, Cochise's son, to uh, finally join Geronimo. And so that was that was critical. Geronimo was not a hereditary chief. Um, that was passed down. So Naiche was the leader of the Chiricahuas, and the fact that he went out with Geronimo gave you know Geronimo a lot of clout. Geronimo was a spiritual leader, and he was just a great warrior. And his fame as a warrior is what led many to uh, to follow him. Had the tribe been getting 
pushed west by this point, or were they being herded into a specific area? Yeah, San, uh, the reason they put them at San Carlos, uh, which is a, kind of a low, uh, almost malarial kind of area on the Gila River, was that it would be easy to resupply, and they knew eventually the railroad was going to go right through there. And so it was all an economy measure. It's just the government trying to save money. And um, they wanted to consolidate all the Apaches in one place. And after the Civil War, that became essentially the Indian policy of the United States government, uh, consolidate all the tribes in one place, segregate them from the whites, uh, allegedly work them toward becoming civilized farmers, as the line was, you know, in that time, uh, destroy their culture and, uh, and assimilate them eventually into American society. And so San Carlos was the center point in, Ari in Arizona where the Apaches were to be gathered. John Clum was the agent there. Uh, who also is a fabulous sort of Western character. He later becomes mayor of Tombstone, hires Wyatt Earp as the marshal, and is involved in all the OK Corral troubles down in uh, southern Arizona. But putting the Apaches all together was a huge mistake because they didn't get along. And, uh, of course, to the government, an Apache was an Apache was an Apache. Um, but uh, San Carlos became... Uh, sort of a, uh, a nest of old feuds and uh, quarrels, and so it became a very unhappy place. Um, and it, it uh, was unhealthy, and it wasn't uh, a, a good climate for mountain people. I mean, they live up in the mountains for a reason. The air's better. It's, you know, cooler. And we now know in Arizona there's this crazy thing called valley fever, which, is, um, which comes from... Um, the uh, dust in the area and uh, sickens people all the time. And uh, these fevers uh, killed hundreds of Apaches after they were consolidated there at San Carlos. And so that just added, added to their discontent. So this consolidation, is this what brings Cochise and Geronimo together? Absolutely. Yeah. They, of course, had known each other before, but they had actually fought each other before because Geronimo, even after Cochise made peace, Geronimo wasn't going to keep the peace. And he um, and his uh, fellow warrior, a uh, fellow named Wo, uh, continued to raid into Mexico and occasionally up into the United States. And, and uh, at one time, Taza and Aiche, the sons of Cochise, battled Geronimo um, and worked with Tom Jeffords, who was the Indian agent. And uh, after Cochise died, the government immediately fired Jeffords, who uh, was a little too cozy with the Indians uh, for the, you know, to make the government uh, happy. And Jeffords never would have gone along with moving the Indians to San Carlos, so he had to go. And so that just contributed all the more to the dissatisfaction of of the natives, you know, with with their lot. I mean, you can't blame them for what they do. Uh, on the other hand, of course, you're not going to be able to continue to keep raiding like you had in the past. Those days were over. But the constant and unrelenting betrayal of these people by the United States government and essentially by bureaucrats who are just making policy is just infuriating. Is there a particular event that turns Geronimo into a heroic figure for his people? Well, there was a particular event that turned him into an implacable warrior, and that was um, uh, Llanos in Mexico was um, one of the great trading centers uh, where the Apaches would go, and they would go down to Llanos, and they would sell their uh, sell the goods they had stolen, uh, sell captives, and trade. And they're down there, and militia, Mexican militia troops, from um, a different area were in pursuit of these Apaches. And while Geronimo and the others were negotiating in Llanos, their village, uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, was assaulted and all the women and children were murdered. And this included Geronimo's wife, his two children, and his mother. And uh, this set him on the um, you know, warrior path. He was a warrior to begin with, but now he just became implacable and um, 
when he was near death, he was asked if he had any regrets in life, and he said, yes, I'm sorry I didn't kill more Mexicans. So this is a man who really followed the vengeance trail. And, and, and that way, he's kind of the, you know, the perfect Western hero, the one who won't compromise, the one who just pursues violence you know, uh, for its own end, uh, and it becomes his life. You've already stated that the final chapter to this this war between the the United States government and the Apache people it, it ends with more of a sputter than anything else, right? It does actually, Geronimo and um, um, just a handful of uh, of people, really under fifty, are all that are holding out, um, but they're making life miserable on both sides of the border. General Crook manages to get him to come in, and uh, Crook had a pretty good relationship on and off with Geronimo, and uh, he convinces Geronimo uh, to surrender, and Crook made some promises to Geronimo that he knew he wouldn't be able to live up to, or I guess he thought he had enough influence that he could overrule uh, the Secretary of War and General Phil Sheridan, who was his commander, because uh, Sheridan wanted Geronimo hanged, and... um, they were going to remove the Apache people. The, there was a lot of talk of putting them in the Indian Territory, Oklahoma, at that time. Well, Crook promised Geronimo that they could you know, just go back to San Carlos and they could stay in Arizona, and um, he wasn't able to deliver on that. And when Geronimo uh, got nervous uh, about this deal, he bolted at the last minute, Unfortunately for Crook, he had already wired Washington, D.C., claiming that he had captured Geronimo. And so that cost him his job. He was replaced by General Nelson Miles. Miles um, used Crook's Apache scouts effectively to convince Geronimo to come in. But the, the way they did it was essentially to remove all of the Chiricahua people and send them to Florida. And it's sort of ironic when you think about uh the Trail of Tears and Indian removal in the 1830s and 40s, they took all the Indians from the east and put them in, you know, the west. In Oklahoma, here they are taking the Apaches, the Chiricahua Apaches, and removing them to Florida, and they imprisoned them there. Well, so essentially what you've done is you've kidnapped their families. And um, so that was the final blow. And um, Miles promised Geronimo that he would... Uh, save his life, that he wouldn't let the folks in Arizona hang him. Um, and he did live up to that, again, disobeying orders, because uh, Sheridan wanted Geronimo hanged. Uh, and a lot of people believe Geronimo deserved to hang. But uh, nevertheless, uh, they were all put on trains and um, taken to Florida. And interestingly, uh, as, the, as the trains moved east, uh, Geronimo became more and more of a hero. Finally, they were removed to uh, Fort Sill in, in the Indian Territory in Oklahoma, and uh, Geronimo was allowed to uh, uh, go on the fair circuit, and he, he appeared in uh, several uh, world's fairs, and he sold his autograph, and he would sell you know Indian trinkets and bows and arrows, and he made uh, a fortune for those days. He, it was said he had $10,000 in the bank when he died. He appeared in Teddy Roosevelt's inaugural parade when, in um, 1906. It was just uh, incredible, his transformation from one of the most feared men in America into an American hero. But we have a habit of doing that, taking, taking uh, bad boys and making them into heroes. Billy the Kid here in New Mexico being another fine example. So uh, Geronimo... Uh, Kind of has a happy ending. I mean, never is he, he asked President Roosevelt to return him to his homeland uh, so he could die in Arizona. Roosevelt said couldn't do it because someone would kill him, and he's probably right. Um, but uh, Geronimo did live in some comfort in his uh, in his final years. So now, in 2019, where where is the largest concentration of Apache people in, in Florida? No, the uh, the Florida the Apaches were imprisoned in Florida, then they were uh, removed eventually to first Alabama and then to uh, Oklahoma, uh, 
southwestern Oklahoma, where Fort Sill is. And there they were kept as prisoners of war until Geronimo died. They are, in fact, um, this was brought to me once when I was giving a book talk by an Apache woman. She said, you know, we hear all this talk about uh, the internment of the Japanese during World War II. Uh, she says, but the people that were imprisoned as prisoners of war the longest time were my people, the Chiricahua people, and she's absolutely right, from 1886 to 1909. And then they were offered the, cho- the remaining um, Chiricahuas were offered the choice of either moving back to New Mexico, to the Mescalero Reservation, which is down in the mountains of southern New Mexico, or of taking up homesteads there in Oklahoma. And so they divided. And most of the people went to Mescalero, went to New Mexico, uh, but many of them stayed in Oklahoma. And they became the Fort Sill Apaches. And they have recently been attempting to come back to their homeland, which is, you know, the mountains around Silver City, New Mexico. And they'd like to open a casino down, down on, uh, I-10. And they would like to restore uh, their homeland and, and bring Geronimo back. He's buried at Fort Sill. Bring him back and bury him in his homeland. And so there's quite a controversy out here over their attempt to purchase land. They don't want anything from the government. They'll purchase the land and establish a casino and um, reestablish their homeland here. So that's go- that's going on today. So the repercussions out here in Indian country are still uh, very much alive from the Apache Wars. I've got a final question. I, I can't forget to ask you about the Apache Kid. A fascinating character in a, in a book full of fascinating characters. Could, could you talk about the Apache Kid, who he was and how he became such a legendary figure in Western lore? Well, I loved the Apache Kid story because he was such a counterpoint to Mickey Free. So Mickey Free is a, you know, white boy raised by the Apaches, uh, who becomes, you know, this famous Apache scout. And um, the Apache kid was an Apache raised by whites, who also becomes uh, an Apache scout. But both of them are finally confronted in life with having to make a decision. Who are you? Are you a, are you a white person? Are you, uh, are you an Apache? And when um, the Apache kid's um, father is killed uh, in a drunken brawl with another Apache, he seeks vengeance and kills that, the man who killed his father. Well, this uh, gets him in trouble with the government, even though he had been, um, along with Mickey Free, the top Apache scout. And he was a great favorite of Al Sieber, who was the white chief of scouts. Uh, and he came in to to surrender after doing after killing the man who killed his father, and there was a confrontation. Shots were fired, and Sieber was terribly wounded in this. And there was a breakout, and the Apache kid uh, broke out. Eventually, he was captured, uh, brought back in. He agreed to surrender, and he was sentenced to, of all places, Alcatraz, which was used as a federal prison for Indians at the time and spent two years in Alcatraz before he was brought back to Arizona and set at liberty by the courts, uh, who ruled that his trial had been illegal, technically. Well, then he was rearrested. Sieber was determined to put him behind bars. Uh, rearrested, sentenced to Yuma Prison in Arizona, which was almost a death sentence, and uh, escaped in his daring escape uh, on the stage to Yuma. And uh, then became the the terror of the Southwest for another uh, 10 years and eventually vanished into the mountains of Mexico, uh, never captured, and uh, sort of riding on, you know, as as the heroic last Apache, the last Apache warrior to resist the whites. And he was involved in something called the Kelvin Gray Massacre, right? Well, that was the stagecoach he was on. That was taking oh. him. Uh, Kelvin Grade was a place where um, the the grade was so steep that everyone had to get out and walk, so the stage could make it up the hill. And the uh, the kid and uh, the other Apache prisoners took that opportunity to overpower 
their uh, guards, killed the sheriff and his deputy, um, uh, terribly wounded the driver of the stage and, and escaped. And so that, as you can imagine, became a huge event. And there was um, a several thousand dollar uh, reward on the kid's head. And posses were all over Arizona and New Mexico uh, looking for him. And, you know, a thou- uh, five thousand, ten thousand dollars in, in the 1890s is a lot of money. And uh, Mickey Free went looking for him, even though they had once been close friends. Uh, Tom Horn, uh, the famous gunfighter uh, who had once been an Apache uh, scout in the Apache Wars, also looked at, uh, tried to hunt him down, but no one could ever catch him. He remained very, very elusive um, and sort of vanished into the mist of history. There were multiple people, right, that, that claimed to have killed him. Do you put any stock in any of those stories? Does one sound more realistic than the others? Or do you just throw up your hands and say, we don't really have any idea? Well, all of the accounts by folks in uh, the United States seem uh, seem not to uh, not to be authentic. Um, but indeed, uh, there were a lot of Mormon settlements down in northern Mexico. They had fled down to northern Mexico because of the polygamy troubles. Uh, and when the church had finally outlawed polygamy, a lot of folks uh, uh, moved to Mexico. I, if you recall, uh, when Mitt Romney's father ran for president, George Romney, uh, he had actually been born in one of those settlements down in Mexico. And so there was some question whether he was an, a, you know, an American citizen or not. Uh, that's how you know, recent all this is. But nevertheless, the kid and his uh, his band preyed on these uh, Mormon settlements, and he and his wife may well have been killed uh, in a fight. Uh, a Norwegian explorer uh, trying to find the so-called lost you know tribe of Apaches in the Sierra Madre um, interviewed a woman who may well have been the Apache kid's daughter, and this just seems like the most logical. Of uh, of all the tales, and and the raids stopped. You know there were no more there were no more raids after this, but there were. You know the Apache kid wasn't the only Apache who fled down into the Sierra Madre, and so it's not impossible that um, those folks weren't. You know, the Apache kid and his wife. Um, but it does seem to be the most logical of all the stories. Well, well, you've written so many articles, so many books. How can we direct people right to you um, and to everything you've, you've done? Well, I do have a website. Just go to you know, uh, paulhutton.com. And, of course, uh, um, although as a defender of independent bookstores, it pains me, uh, I still you know, just have to say that it's so easy to find all my publications at amazon.com. You know, and there's a... A link, you know, on my for the Apache Wars book. There's a link that takes you right to um, my site, and all of my publications are are listed there. And I just signed uh, on Monday um, a new contract with uh, Dutton, which is part of Random House, uh, just like Crown was, uh, for my next book, which is due in 18 months. Kind of daunting which is going to be sort of my dream project, a big history of the American West from the Revolution to 1890. Uh, I call it the Undiscovered Country. And, oh, my goodness. Uh, wow. So I'm going to lock myself away. And uh, one of my friends is Hampton Sides, the very successful writer, and he calls it the uh, Cave of Pain. So <laughs> lock my way, lock myself away in the cave and... Uh, and write this book. But I'm very excited about it because this is kind of a dream book for me. And I'm, I'm going to use uh, the lives of seven Americans, uh, four white uh, sort of Western heroes, Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, Kit Carson, and Buffalo Bill, and then three Native leaders, uh, Red Eagle, the leader of the Creeks, Mangus Colorados, the Apache leader, and Sitting Bull. Uh, and kind of weave the story through their lives like I tried to do with the Apache Wars, through the lives of Mickey Free, the Apache Kid, Cochise, and others. Anything about Mike Fink? You know, I'll uh, work Mike Fink into that Davy Crockett section. Uh, you know, back in the 50s, they actually made one of the Davy Crockett shows was uh, uh, Davy Crockett's encounter with Mike Fink on the Mississippi, which was uh, 
a great influence on me as a kid. And Mike Fink was a fascinating character, and he's actually connected with the fur trade of the far west of the Rocky Mountains because he's taking uh, goods up the Missouri, and that's where he finally meets his end. He gets killed uh, up there uh, in a duel. So, uh, yeah, larger-than-life characters. But the, the story of the West is that kind of story. And, and to me, it's kind of the story of America. What, it's what makes us uh, unique from, uh, from other peoples. And, uh, of course, I find it a romantic and colorful story, but, but also tragic at the same time. And my title comes from the undiscovered country isn't because somebody's discovering something. Uh, the undiscovered country is from Hamlet's soliloquy. Um, it's kind of the dual edge of both triumph and tragedy. That's the story of the West, and that's what I hope to capture in this book. Well, this has been so great. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it very much. Again, I've been talking to author Paul Andrew Hutton about his best-selling book, the Apache Wars, The Hunt for Geronimo, The Apache Kid, and The Captive Boy Who Started the Longest War in American History. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.